Well, welcome and good morning. We're gathered here uh, to celebrate uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and shared union um, and communion with Christ through the Holy Spirit and with one another. Uh, We are continuing in our adventure through the gospel according to Matthew. Going a little bit back as we finish chapter 15, I just want to kind of open up maybe where we've been over the past few months, just really in chapter 14 and 15. As we end it today, I want you to see kind of the the symmetry of of the writing of what Matthew is writing, the events that are happening, and also um, the interesting nature of how things are progressing. In chapter 14, it begins with uh, the murder of John the Baptist and and the the foul nature and frivolity with which it takes place. Uh, It then goes from Jesus hearing about the death of John the Baptist and seeking solitude. And as he goes to seek solitude, he's met with the crowds. And so then we have the great, one of the the most well-known miracles, which is the feeding of the 5,000, which is actually probably closer to 10 to 15,000 if you number the women and the children as well, the family units. After that, Jesus again goes to seek a place of solitude and then goes to return after sending the disciples across the lake And then he's walking on water in the midst of a storm. And that miracle happens there. And then Peter is called out. And then after that, he heals more people. And then after that, he is confronted in 15 with the the scribes and the Pharisees seeking to trap him, test him, which has now become their thing, try to make sure that he is publicly shamed or shown to be a fraud or whatever they might desire for him to not have the following that he has. And one of the the things that has repeated since the beginning of Jesus' ministry is is while he is is performing miracles, while he is healing, while at all times uh, what we call the Old Testament, Jesus is fulfilling the promises of Messiah. And he's pointing to the fact that kingdom has, has in its inaugural state arrived because Christ is walking the earth in his humiliation. Messiah has arrived. And yet the majority, the vast majority of the people who are supposed to be waiting for him, the Jewish people, will reject him. His disciples remain few. And yet the crowds continue to follow him. And when you have the the feeding of the 5,000, John's account of it is that the crowds continue to follow him and ask for another sign. And they just kind of go about their way. No thank you. No, that was some good fish and bread. They had their fill and they left. And then so we go to the the conflict that he has with, with the scribes and the Pharisees about this teaching of, hey, your disciples aren't washing their hands when they eat. They're going to be defiled. And in essence, his response was like, no, you're defiled because your heart is unclean. And that's the real problem. We've talked since the beginning of the, of the gospel account. The real problem is here. The real problem is the unattended heart, the undisciplined mind. The one that isn't focused on God's law and his favor and his gracious nature. And our unending need for that grace and that favor and his compassion. So he continues that teaching And then he moves out of the principalities of Judah into Tyre and Sidon, where we were last week, where he interacts with the Canaanite woman, who shows a kind of faith unseen in all these places within Israel. And now he's going to be making his way back towards the area of Jerusalem, where in 16, what will kind of be a bookend to all of this, is as a all of these things that he's doing, all these healings, all these miracles, all this teaching, he'll now come back in 16, which we won't be reading today, at the very first couple of verses, the Pharisees and the Sadducees will be waiting for him to test him as he re-enters Jerusalem. He goes out of Jerusalem with very few followers. He goes into the most Canaanite wilderness land there in Tyre and Sidon and finds a person where he doesn't even teach crying out for mercy, acknowledging who he is as Messiah. And then that's where we find ourselves today. 
as he's still in Gentile lands, moving his way back towards Jerusalem. And so I'll be reading from verses 29 through 39 in chapter 15. As I read out loud, after I read out loud, to give you the opportunity to pray. Pray for the Holy Spirit to open your heart and your mind to show you, to show you sin you need to repent of. To ask God to, to, to break you anew by the Spirit and the Word. To show you to show you where you need to beg Him to knock down the high places and the idols in our own image so that we would pursue Him more. After that, I will pray for us corporately and we will go into the time of the ministry of the Word. Reading now from 15, 29 through 39. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered. They saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. For those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. This is the word of God. Please take time to pray. Heavenly Father, your people gather here on the Lord's Day to come together to worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Through these combined elements that you've left us of of the Word, your Holy Word, in which you have revealed yourself to us, not in fullness, but in part, So we might know you, we might, through the Spirit, repent of our dead works and be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would have instructions on living. Lord, we are here and we lift up our praises to you through song. At no point are we told those voices need to sound good. We are simply to lift the praises, the inner part of us that cries out in recognition of our rescue, one that we did not merit, one that we have not earned, 
And our only response is to praise. God, we call to, as a people of prayer, a people that seek to commune with our God, both individually and corporately, recognizing that through Christ, the Redeemer, and His blood, You have made a way between unchanging, perfect creator and changing, imperfect and sinful creation. And now for those who have confessed and believed in Christ, are sealed in him by the Spirit. We seek to commune with you through prayer. Recognizing you as Lord and Master. As glorious and holy imperfect. We acknowledge our imperfection and we cry out to you, Lord, help us. Help us now as a congregation. Help us now as as God's people to be attentive to your word. Show us, Lord, through spirit and word the places in our lives that we need to dedicate more to you fully. God, we come and just being together physically is a fellowship of the saints. And this is a celebration in and of itself as we are uh, communing with you through the Spirit. We are also united one with the other through the Holy Spirit. And we celebrate by being here physically our future celebration in the kingdom when Christ returns. God, now I pray for the church. I pray that you would lift the church up through the teaching of your word. You would break the church down through the teaching of your word. And ultimately, you would be glorified. God, I pray for the unbelievers in our midst, which certainly there must be, God, I pray that this is the time you have determined in eternity past that they would be called by the power of the gospel to repent of dead works and believe in Christ our Savior. God, all glory go to your name at this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Without a raise of hands, how many of you historically have read this second feeding of the 4,000 and just read it and like, oh, Jesus is feeding people again, cool, and then moved on? Don't raise your hand. It's many of you. It's many of us. And I wanted to see see the symmetry of what's happening. I kind of laid the groundwork of it is that this feeding is dramatically different. Not just in the details, but in the people who are actually partaking of it. If you notice the details, Jesus is still in Gentile lands. And so what you're going to notice as both the the forerunner of it, which is really the main section of all of this, where it talks about what Jesus has done, and then the meal itself, is what makes this different is that as the Canaanite woman, so now Jesus will have this meal with a majority of Gentile people. You still with me? Follow along. Jesus went from there in 29 and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. Great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them... At his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and here's the important phrase, they glorified the God of Israel. Elsewhere in most of the New Testament, God is simply referred to as as the, the term God. The designation here for the God of Israel, and then what will follow here in the meal itself, is one of the more primary points that this audience is different from the 5,000. Also, what we see here is interesting is that Jesus, 
walked beside the Sea of Galilee, went on the mountain, and sat down. And the crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute. If you remember back in the account of John's disciples in chapter 11, they go and they're asking Jesus who he is. And Jesus quotes Isaiah, and it has to do with, tell them that what? The blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised, and the mute may speak. It's the same designation. But here we have this interesting lack of any interaction of Jesus' teaching. If you remember the Canaanite woman, he's walking through Tyre and Sidon. What is there a lack of? Him saying anything. The Canaanite woman is crying out, it says, incessantly following them. And the, the, the phrase that the, the disciples use is, please dismiss her. Please get rid of her. And she keeps calling and crying out. We talked last week. She finally gets in front and bows down and worship and begs for mercy. And he says, you have great faith. And he gives her mercy. And then, then Matthew writes, and he just keeps walking right out of town, going back south to where he will pass through the area that Mark will say in the same uh, gospel account, the Decapolis or the Ten Cities. They were, they were as a Gentile region. And so Jesus goes from this Gentile encounter with the Canaanite woman and doesn't say anything and goes up on a mountain and just sits down. And it's very reminiscent of the Sermon on the Mount, Right? And then as he's sitting, these crowds come to him. And they bring the sick, the lame, the blind. And he brings them to them and he heals them. There's, there's no need for me to break down Greek syntax or anything like that. This is a very straightforward text. Jesus sits, people come, and then they list all of these impossible ailments to heal. One, one author talks about understanding what it meant for, say, the paralytic to get up and walk. A paralytic for life would have atrophy muscled in their entire body. So the paralytic getting up and walking wasn't just a stick figure standing up and walking away. It was literally the refilling and renewing of a muscular system in his body. And then him getting up. And people watching it happen. Person blind for life. And as weird as it may be with spitting in the hands or mud on it, whatever it may be. The fact that someone who could not see was now able to see. Impossible. A mute. Able to talk. Someone unable to hear. Able to hear. These are things that were done with people who would have had these maladies for life or would have been well-known within their society, whether it's in the midst of Judea or in pagan lands. And in both places, they would have seen cursed by God of Israel or cursed by the multitude of gods that were worshipped. And yet they're brought in this very public space with thousands of people coming. Jesus isn't teaching. He just heals one after the other. We've seen this throughout his interaction with Israel. And now, the crowd wondered. It means they were awed. They, they, they couldn't explain what they were seeing in 31. And when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing they glorified the God of Israel. This is common vernacular, both in the Old and the New Testament, for a foreigner to worship a God who they didn't personally know, but had heard of. We see it with, probably most prominently, is right before the fall of Jericho, when the spies go in, and Rahab gives an account of hearing about the God of Israel. After that as well, we have other interactions when we went through the book of Ruth. Your God is my God, she would say to Naomi. 
The God of Israel was, was the designation for the foreign born outside of Israel who was recognizing that they were seeing something or had heard something that they formerly thought impossible, but now this God of Israel was able to do it. So here comes Jesus, the Messiah, the long-awaited for, and he goes to the place where he's supposed to be waited on. He fulfills scripture publicly, though the voice of God is heard at his baptism, and yet every step he takes within the boundaries of Israel is met with what? Derision, unbelief, opponents seeking to kill him, silence him, take his disciples away, take his followers away, do away with him completely. And yet he keeps going from place to place, and the worst place for him to go is the place he was born. No place as bad as a prophet's own hometown. And yet, the law of Moses, the prophets, the writings, they had it all. The children were raised in the household, and it was on the wall, and the fathers were teaching it at the table. No one recognizes it. Only the very select few. All he does is walk into a pagan town. And a woman chases him. I know who you are. He just goes, I'm going to go walk to a mountain now. And the crowds from the Decapolis and probably Tyre and Sidon as well follow him. Bring all of their sick to him. He heals all of them and their only thoughts are to be awed because they've never seen or heard anything like it. And what is the difference between the crowds of Israel and the crowds here? It says they glorified the God of Israel. Meaning they could do only one thing but acknowledge that the God of Israel was at work. Do you see it? The recipients of this letter primarily the audience Matthew is writing to Jews. He wants Jewish people to understand this. At the time that it's written, a couple decades after Christ ascends back, the majority of the church is already predominantly Gentile. In this very tiny account, almost a hiccup in, unless you get hiccups really bad, in this narrative... He doesn't even say anything. His presence draws people to him. And as a precursor to the gospel going out to the Gentiles, when we talked about the Feast of the 5,000, if you were here, if not, one of the things that I pointed out is that this wasn't just him feeding hungry people. This was Jesus, the king, reclining with the people and, and offering himself to the people to have a feast with the king as a, as a foreshadow of the future feasts that we will have. And now he's going to offer a similar feast to a very different crowd. So here he is, healing, showing himself Messiah. And the Gentiles marvel at it. And they, and they say, Glory to the God of Israel. It says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Now, this is some clever wording. In 32 there in the middle where it says, I'm unwilling to send them away. That's the same word for dismiss that's been used throughout 14 and 15. When the 5,000 come, the disciples are going to ask Jesus to send them away. It's the same word, dismiss them, send these people away. And then the same with the Canaanite women. The disciples are going to say, same word, send her away. And then in this account of all the people coming to Jesus and then Jesus having compassion on them. He's the first one to speak and says, I will not dismiss them. I will not 
send them away. Now, the disciples said to him, 33, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Now, if you feel a small frustration towards the disciples at this point, I often tell you, hey, you're the disciples. But I I feel like this is one where you can probably go feel a little frustrated with the disciples at this point. Where on earth are we going to feed this few people, is what they should have said, because they've already fed more. Many commentators believe this has to do with the inherent ickiness of what the disciples had already gone through with the Canaanite woman and now being surrounded by Gentiles whom Jesus is healing and watching these Gentiles worship or, or offer praise to God, or at least in, at the lowest level, an acknowledgement that God has done this work because it's impossible for man. Now, I will say that is speculative, and so you do not want to drive that home to a theological point. At best, you would have to say, Textually, it's a marker of the uh, lead-headedness of the disciples, which is a marker of all of us. Because one of the things that's lacking here that I think is very, very prominent is what comes prior to the disciples going, hey, I've never seen a situation like this before. What are we going to do? Is Jesus saying what? I have compassion on them. Now, the first feeding, the people had been with him one day. This feeding, they'd been with him three days. That's how much healing Jesus was doing. Been with him three days, and now he says, I will not send them away. I have compassion on them. Means Jesus looked on their situation, saw that they were hungry. The reason they were hungry is because they were coming to him And so he was going to ensure that they were full and satisfied for their journey home. Now, we probably should circle that a little bit. And what I mean by that is is often when we're talking through the Gospels, we're talking about Jesus, or even if the Sunday school answer of any question that's asked is Jesus, is we have to think about what he's doing. We know he's merciful. We talked about that last week. We know he's God incarnate. We've talked about that before. We know he's in his humiliation. We've talked about that over and over again to drive that point home. But what does it mean to emulate Jesus in his compassion? What does it mean to have a generous spirit? Now, many of you, the moment I said generous, are probably like, is he going to talk about money? Maybe. It doesn't happen very often, but not really. The generosity that Jesus shows. Think of the background. No one expected the Gentiles to receive this gift. No one expected Messiah to be involved with Gentiles at all. Yet way earlier on, a centurion comes to him in a crowded place in the principality of Judea as a follower, and Jesus blesses him. We know about the Samaritans who would have been considered at best half icky, but now it's just he's with the Gentiles. And what does he see? He doesn't see them as a historic Israelite opponent. He sees them exactly as Israel in case of what they need and what their dire need is. Just like Israel, just like the Jews, they are utterly broken, completely consumed by sin. They are, as earlier in 15, they are defiled. And yet Jesus will show compassion on them. He will see their state, know he can do something about it, and pursue it. Now, none of us can, through the power of God, create food out of nothing and give it to somebody who's hungry. Nor can we heal the blind 
We're not Christ. But where do you put the limits of your compassion? Is it with your family? People you generally like? Is it yourself? I'm pretty generous with myself. I like to buy myself things. And yet compassion and generosity are are an expectation of the Christian man and woman to follow Christ. A giving nature. Starting with one another. Does someone have physical needs? They really are in need of money and they really are in need of food or, or housing. Guess who's supposed to be the first people that go, I got this. It's you. Is there a need for someone to work and they're looking for work and they're a hard worker and they just can't find it and you have the ability to give them a job? Who should be the one to answer that call? But see, it goes beyond just the physical needs. Is there anyone you know that's in dire consequence from the result of their own sinfulness? You know it because they've shared it with you. And what is your response? Well, that's weird. I'm not getting, I'm not touching that. I don't want to get involved with that. I'm over my head. That's an answer not found in the New Testament. And I dare say it's easier to help someone with a physical need than it is to help someone with great spiritual distress. And yet, the compassion of Christ is clear. It's not one or the other, it's both. It's time for the church to renew their mind and their thoughts about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable with each other's sin. What that means is, if you're in this congregation and you're struggling with something and you're drowning... You should be reaching out to somebody and letting them know this is what I'm struggling with. It, it owns me. And that person's responsibility is to say, I'm with you. And if they don't have the answer, let's find someone that has the answer because the man and woman belonging to Christ, the child, one of the most distressing things is to is to watch someone struggle with sin and when they do share it with someone the response is for that other someone to flee or to recoil as if they're surprised that a sinful person does sinful things if our compassion only reaches out to the easy things while it may not be physically easy to mow someone's grass, it's pretty easy compared to having to deal with someone's marriage falling apart. It is fairly easy to cook a meal for somebody in comparison of helping someone outside of some type of addiction. I'm not going to say we're wimps because I like using big theological words, but I can't think of a better one. If it makes you afraid to minister to one another as Christ is ministering to unclean, defiled, uncircumcised Philistines in essence, he comes in his 
incarnation and his humiliation to break down all the nonsense beliefs and summarize it into you're all equal in your broken, rebellious sinfulness. All of these social things that you think are so important don't mean anything. You're sinners. Congratulations, you all have so much in common. And then when we are called to Christ, it's the same thing. It's the argument from Romans. Gentile, Jew, what are you talking about? Union with Christ and that you share with one another is the most important thing. And if we keep that in mind, if we understand the way we're supposed to serve one another and show compassion to one another through the lens of that aspect of union, well, then what strengthens us is the idea that we're doing what Christ has called us to do by the power of Christ for the purpose of that person who may be struggling and broken and drowning in sin might see victory in Christ. But too often, too often the drowning brother or sister is used as a stepping stool. Too often we look at it and say, I don't want to get my hands dirty. I don't want to get involved in that. The disciples were no different. Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? All the indications of the feeding of the 5,000 is probably in the spring because they're sitting down in the grass. Here it's probably during the summer because they're sitting in what the, the word is essentially like barren ground or dry ground. So you have to think like it's been what, a few months? How are we going to do this? And Jesus asked the same question. How many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. So they have more than they had at the first feast. And then directing the crowd to sit on the ground, he took the seven loaves, Jesus, and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. There's less instructions and back and forth in this feeding than in the first one. But in essence, it's the same layout. Disciples ask, how are we going to do it? Jesus asked, what do you have? They have more this time than they had the first time. Jesus gives thanks, gives the baskets, which is a different word than what's used in the first feeding. This is a larger basket. Gives it to the disciples. The disciples, again, they ask, how are we going to do it? Jesus hands them baskets, and the disciples distribute and serve this giant mob of unclean, uncircumcised Philistines. They weren't really Philistines, but that was the ancient curse for anyone outside of Israel and now these disciples who we've marveled at how thick how faithless and now they serve people who in their own upbringing would have been seen as unclean outside of the covenant of Israel uh, destined for Gehenna or Sheol and these are the people that have glorified the God of Israel, marveled at it. He took the seven loaves and the fish, giving thanks. He broke them, gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. He took up seven baskets. They took up seven baskets of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got in the boat and went to the region of Magadan or Magdala. So what do you take from this? Okay, Jesus did miracles. We've been reading about that for a while. Okay, Jesus healed some Gentiles and fed them. Okay, he was doing that earlier. Well, that's one way to look at it. I'd say the better way to look at it is that rife within these accounts of the feedings and the opposition of the, sad, uh, of the Jewish leaders, in which will come in 16 more opposition, is that if you are not marveling at the ability for man to continue in sinful rebellion in the face of everything they've seen, you have too high of an opinion of humanity. 
I would say turn on the news, but I fear you probably all watch too much news or, or scroll too much news. How good is humanity? You see, that's a problem with looking at the outside. Look at what they're doing. Look at the things they're doing. Look at the things they're saying. Look how unclean they are. Look how defiled they are. Look at what the world is happening to the world. All these evil people. And before you know it, you're not sounding like someone who's following Jesus. You sound like a disciple of the Pharisees. Look at all these dirty people everywhere. Good thing I'm clean. No. Jesus is telling his disciples, he's teaching his disciples, this is what the kingdom is going to look like. These people you think are so bad and these people that you think are so good, they're all bad and so are you. And yet my love for you is equal for them, is equal for all of those who will be called to my kingdom. He's teaching his disciples compassion. To look on someone you think has no value or repulses you. You're supposed to see them in a manner that Christ saw you. You were no great, shiny, beautiful thing. And you still aren't. You're half shiny. You're half beautiful if you're in Christ. And one day, you'll be full beautiful and full shiny. This is the worst. I don't know how this even started. <laughs> I see the faces and I, I hear the words and I'm like, what am I, what am I doing? Uh, delete that section. <clears throat> we're all broken. We're all sinners. Lack of compassion comes from a forgetfulness of self. Don't look on others who you know are outside of the faith and turn your nose at them. At the very least, pray for them. I'd be willing to bet, just as I said something about Scrolling news, many of you watch too much social media. Delete it all forever. That's inspired. <laughs> you see the, the things going on in the country and the world today, the push for what can only be, if you don't realize it, the disintegration of families. Disintegration of norms that have been norms for millennia. And, and you'll, you'll see these creatures saying vile things. And what will we do? Look at that vile creature. See how easy? See how easy it's been made in our lives to lack compassion on the broken? That vile creature you saw more than likely suffered unimaginable abuse as a child and is broken mentally from it and easily led astray by truly evil people and you are surrounded by people like that. The Jews were surrounded by enemies and historic opponents and Jesus does what? He treats them all on an equal slate. It's what they couldn't understand. Oh, he's Messiah. He's here. He's come to deliver us to the kingdom. He's like, yes, I have. Now, excuse me while I go tell this Gentile and Roman soldier that he and his whole household are forgiven. What? That's not the plan. Well, Jesus is the one who wrote the plan. We need a firm reminder. The church needs a firm sense of compassion. People act broken and sinful and vile because they are. 
And because you have the spirit and you have the ability to fight it through the word, which is made clear to you only through the revelation of the spirit. And if you're honest with yourself, there are many moments throughout the week where you are vile. Where you forget the commandments of God. Where you look and you see and you consider and you think and you reach out and grab and you sin. And you have the spirit and you have the word and you have the community of faith. What do they have? Nothing. God's judgment hovering over them. And we're called as a people understanding of their estate, as the disciples were. Understanding of their own sinfulness. Understanding of their own former brokenness, which they could do nothing about, but now they were saved. And we're supposed to be in the midst of the muck and the Gentiles and be able to tell them, hey, the real problem isn't your political views, although those need work. Your real problem is you are broken. You are alienated from your creator, both by birth and by choice. But I will tell you, so was I. And the hope that you see in me that frustrates and annoys you is because Christ has redeemed me. Because the unchanging creator made it possible. And he calls you to repent of all of that and follow him. Chances are you'll get mocked. Chances are you'll get scorned. So, that's what you're supposed to expect. If you haven't gotten the theme in the last few weeks, I'm trying to get you uncomfortable. Uncomfortable with being comfortable all the time. We're not supposed to be at comfort. We're not supposed to be at ease. We're supposed to be people trained for war and to engage. And that's why we talked about starting with the family. If the family's under attack and it's going to be, and it's being essentially the attempt to disintegrate the family, then the families need to be strengthened through the fathers, partnership with the wives for the purpose of raising godly children and families agreeing with one another. We're going to hold each other accountable to that and use that as a foundation for a church for all these other works of ministry. Jesus gave these disciples a foundation. He didn't sit down and tell them this is what compassion looks like. He showed them their compassionlessness. That's probably not a word. It's a problem when you like to use big theological words, but you make up normal words. It is what it is. A test for your lack of comfort. You know somebody who's a believer in the church or a believer outside of this church that you're friends with, family with, who is drowning in sin? Have that uncomfortable meeting, conversation, where you sit down, you look them in the eyes, and you say, I know. You have to break this through the Spirit. You have to put this to death. Your love for them is lacking if you refuse to do that. Another test that may, is in within the household of faith. Or another challenge, however you want to view it. Whatever your competitive nature might be. Someone you know is an unbeliever. And it's clear that God has put them in your life over and over and over again. And you have yet to this day 
with all the problems they may bring to you or all of them that you see, you have yet to stop and say, look, I know what your problem is. And I'm not talking about all the problems you're telling me about. I know the root of your problem. You are an enemy of God. And all this outworking in your life are the fruits of your rebellion. Our time is short. Our comfort and our relaxation are drugs that we're addicted to. It's time to put them to rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its confrontation. We thank you for its comfort. Lord, may you move in this church to strengthen our families, to strengthen our marriages, our parenting, bind family units one to another within this fellowship for the purpose of glorifying your name in the ordinary living. God, I pray for courage to have the hard conversations with one another that we need to have. To help people break sinful habits. God, I pray for compassion on the unbelieving. Let us not fall into the trap of our first instinct being to revile and to sneer. Rather, to see their need, their great need of the Savior, Jesus Christ. God, strengthen this church in this coming year. I pray that we would be a testament to a a faithful local congregation with our thoughts and our hopes in the return of Messiah for the glory of his name. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.